Beloved, this is our God's word to us uh, this morning. Let us give our attention to the reading of it. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused her. But afterward, he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes... Will he find faith on the earth? Oh, that ends the reading of our God's word. Let us ask his blessing uh, on our time in it this morning. Lord, you know our pride. You know how we can think so much more highly of ourselves than we ought. We think ourselves stronger than we are, richer than we are, more worthy than we are. But you oppose the proud and you give grace to the humble. And so we want humility We want grace. And as we turn to your word, we ask that you would lead us into humility, into grace, so that we might have you. We ask this through Christ our Savior. Amen. Yeah, you may be seated. I wonder what the hardest uh, Christian discipline is for you. I can tell you for me, it's prayer. might not be what you want to hear your pastor say, but it's true. It's hard. It's really hard. Uh, Personally, I would rather work hard, run errands, write a sermon, meet with people, anything. uh, Because pausing, bowing, praying is hard. And when I come to a passage like this one, a passage where Jesus says that I ought always to be praying without losing heart, when I come to a passage like this, I feel convicted, challenged, humbled, and a little bit scared. Pray and don't lose heart. On the one hand, it sounds so simple, doesn't it? And yet it sounds so impossible, so out, out beyond our reach. We all know what it is to start praying with every intention of sticking to it, but then we fade, we stop. And why do we stop praying? Well, it's because we lose hope. Why do we lose hope? Well, it's because we doubt God's goodness. And why do we doubt God's goodness? It's because he doesn't give us what we want, when we want. Because really... When we, when we cut away all the distractions and everything else, we tend to think of prayer as a way of getting God to do what we want. And that's not what prayer is. Now, we can't lose our context. Chapter 17 that we, we looked at over the last few sermons was all about Jesus' first and his second comings. 
Uh, his first coming would be would come and did come with the inauguration of his kingdom. It came. Uh, uh, his, his kingdom comes through salvation, it belongs to God's people, and it is virtually invisible to the world around us because it can only be seen with the eyes of faith. His second coming on the last day will bring that kingdom to its consummation. It, it will be sudden and it will be cataclysmic, and the only way to be prepared for it is to live each and every day in light of its certainty knowing that it can happen at any time. And even as we come to this passage uh, in chapter 18, Jesus hasn't changed subjects. Look at verse 8. What will the Son of Man find when he comes? He's still looking to that last day. He's still talking about his return, or at least talking about life in light of that return. Having addressed how to prepare for the last day for his return, he's now addressing how to live while we await that last day and we await his return. And we have two options. Despair or hope. Defeat or persistence. Jesus has just told his disciples that there will be a day when they will be so tired that they will just long for his return. Verse, chapter 17, verse 22. Because the time between his first and his second coming is, is characterized by, by suffering and affliction and rejection. And the temptation, he warns us, will be to just give up. Call it quits. Pull the ripcord and check out. And the antidote, Jesus says, is prayer. Prayer should characterize our lives while we wait. And the reason, as we'll see, is this. Confidence in God's goodness shows itself in persistent and patient prayer. Confidence in God's goodness shows itself in patient and persistent prayer. That's what we're going to see. Now, in some ways, this passage is immensely simple. Eight verses, the story of a persistent widow who won't let a judge rest until she gets justice. And in other ways, this passage is deep. It's about the core of the Christian life, and it brings a challenge to our pride, that pride that shows itself in self-reliance, that pride that can only lead to despair. And if we understood these eight verses... If we really, really understood and believed these eight verses, our lives would be radically changed for the better. So let's dive in and look at these. Uh, it's often called the parable of the persistent widow, sometimes called the parable of the unrighteous judge. And it's, it tells the story of a woman who's been wronged. We, we don't know exactly what the wrong was, but it's clear that it's some injustice. Someone has taken advantage of her, uh, and that's not really surprising. She's a widow, and being a widow comes with certain uh, realities. Widows, especially, especially in the ancient world, were neglected. Uh, They were typically poor. They were charity cases. They were pitied. And truth be told, they were easy targets, Uh, easy to take advantage of, And when you did, the chances of facing justice simply weren't that great. 
No one was going to make a big deal about protecting widows. Simply put, she does not have a lot of social capital. She doesn't have any weight to throw around. Uh, There's not much she can do to get the wheels of justice turning. She has no money to hire a lawyer. So what does she do? Well, she, she leverages the only thing she does have, which is time. She figures she'll just camp outside the local judge's house and plead for justice until he does something. She has nowhere to be. She can do this all day long, and she can do it tomorrow and the day after. And the judge, we're told, he doesn't fear God, and he doesn't respect men. And what Jesus is getting at is what drives him, what motivates him. A lack of fear of God means he's not driven by a concern to do what's right. He's not worried about standing before his creator and giving an account for the decisions he's made. Nor does he respect man, which is just another way of saying he's not concerned about what others think about him. He's not going to do something just so that people think well about him. He's not concerned about looking good and preserving his reputation. So if he's not driven by a fear of God and he's not driven by respect for man's opinion, what motivates him? Well, the only thing that's left, self-interest. There's only one thing that drives this judge, the question, what's in it for him? And what does a poor widow have to offer a powerful judge like this? Nothing. All she represents to him is work and no benefit. And so he ignores her, at least for as long as he can, because she doesn't go away. She won't leave him alone. I love how verse 4 puts it. He said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man. And it sounds funny, but I think really what's happening here is we're being given a, a glimpse into his inner dialogue. We all know what it is to wrestle with ourselves. We know what it is to try to convince ourselves that the easy road is the right road and yet to have that voice, but what's the right thing to do? And then saying, fine, I'll do it. Well, I hope we know what that's like. But he's doing it the, he's doing the opposite. He's wrestling with what to do. Perhaps the widow has said, what would God want? And he's thinking, I don't care. Maybe she said, what will people think of you if you don't help me? And he's thinking, I don't care about that either. The only thing that does seem to matter to him is that she won't leave him alone and give him rest. She's relentless. She's persistent. She's unyielding. And there's no end in sight. And he thinks, I'll give her what she wants just to make her go away. And then comes the point. Then comes the comparison. Every parable has one. And this one is no exception. Jesus asks, if a wicked judge will do the right thing if pursued long enough, how much more will the God who is good do the right thing? God's nothing like this judge. God loves what is good and what is right. He is the author of justice. 
And it's that reality of who he is that drives him to answer those who cry out for justice. Where the judge can't be bothered to lift a finger when there's nothing in it for him, Jesus came into this world to help those who couldn't help help themselves. Think about what Jesus has done. He became poor. He became insignificant. He suffered injustice. He was abused by corrupt judges. He cried out for justice when no one would listen. He became like this weak widow. He identified with her. He came to serve her and those like her without obligation. He's nothing like the wicked judge. How much more will he help those who cry out for justice? How much more will he run to their rescue? That's the point. And so where does all of this lead? How are we to respond? That's what he addresses in the last verse. When the Son of Man comes, he asks, will he find faith on earth? It's about faith. Now, faith is not some abstract idea that we can fill uh, with any meaning we want. Faith is not wishful thinking. Faith is not uh, about creating a new reality by wielding some uh, invisible energy force. Faith is simply believing what God says. Faith can only exist in response to something God has said. And in this case, it's the promise that Jesus will come again to judge the world in righteousness. Faith responds to that promise by constantly praying for God to do what he has said, to come again and set all things right. True faith doesn't give up simply because things take longer than we would prefer. True faith, true faith persists to the end. And that's why Jesus finishes his his call to persistent prayer with a question about whether or not he will find faith when he returns. Will he find people still praying for what he has promised, confident that he is good and he cares about the afflicted? Because Jesus understands that prayer and faith are, are two sides of the same coin. Whereas pride looks to itself, pride trusts its own strength, uh, where it abhors help. You know, pride hates being helped. Faith is very different. Faith looks to another. Faith confesses weakness, and it puts all hope in God. And so faith finds its outward expression in prayer. Faith says, I need help. Prayer asks for help. Faith necessarily asks, like the widow in our passage, faith understands that all we have is our time and our persistence. In other words, at our best, at our absolute best, that's all we are, persistent widows. 
when we see reality most clearly, when we see ourselves most clearly, when we understand God's character most clearly, that's what we are. Persistent widows crying out for justice. And that's why prayer is so hard. Because it's humbling. Why would we rather work, help, do things? Because it's things that we think we can do. Prayer surrenders all of that and says, I'm needy, I need help. And it's humbling. And that's why it's the hardest of Christian disciplines for me. Because it's humbling. Because it acknowledges that I need help. Because it says, I can't fix my problems. Because it confesses that I have nothing to offer but time and persistence. Because it forces me to identify with the widow in this parable and admit that she and I are really no different from each other. Because no one wants to be a persistent widow. Some despise her. Some ignore her. Some seek to help her, but no one wants to be her. And yet, she's the heroine of our story. She's the model Jesus holds up for us to aspire to. He's asking, when I return, will I find any persistent widows? And beloved, we would be blessed to be counted among them. But that means learning to embrace our weakness and our need. It means believing that this world is not what it should be, that it's broken and it's twisted, and that God cares, and that he's good. It means believing that one day he will come to set all things right. It means responding to that belief with persistent prayer without losing hope. You see, this passage is not about how to manipulate God by pestering him until he gives you what you want. It's about seeking his justice, confident that he will bring it in time. It's about humbly and openly acknowledging that we have nothing but Jesus. It's about learning to say, I'm going to keep asking because what else can I do? I know God is good and he will do what is right in his time and I'm not letting go. But to do that, to persist in faith, to persist in prayer, to not lose hope, To do this, you must believe that God is good and that God keeps his promises. So what assurance does God give us that he is good and he intends to keep his promises? Well, that's what the Lord's Supper is all about. Uh, First, it's a picture of something. It's a visible reminder that he is good and he is kind. It's a visible reminder that he took on flesh and blood, the bread, a picture of his flesh, the wine, a picture of his blood, that he came into this world to save those who could not save themselves, that he became poor and insignificant, that he suffered injustice, that he was abused by corrupt judges, and that he cried out for justice, that he became like a weak widow, that he identified with her, 
that he came to serve her and those like her. The bread and wine remind us of who he is, that he is good. But it's also a seal on his promises. It's like a signature on a contract that binds him to keep those promises. And we need that. Not because God is in danger of breaking his promises, but because we're in danger of losing heart. When we don't get what we want, when we want, we doubt God's goodness and we lose heart. The Lord's Supper is meant to continually remind us who he is, that he is good, and he is just, and he is kind. And to remind us that he keeps his promises so that we might never lose heart. I'd like to ask the elders to come forward that we might receive this wonderful gift from our our Lord this morning. Please join me in prayer. Our Father, your heart is with the widows and orphans. Your strength is made perfect in weakness. You hear the cries of the afflicted and you answer in justice. Help us to gladly identify not with the rich and powerful, but with the meek and lowly. Help us to see ourselves in the persistent widow and to pray without losing heart. Help us to remember that you will come again and you will bring justice when you do. Until then, teach us to wait in patience, in confidence, in hope, knowing that you are good and that you keep your promises. Amen.